Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcasts at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at eric, E-R-I-K, dot Anderson at nllutheran.com. close out the Christmas story this morning with a reading out of Matthew chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time where the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage." When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I'm, I'm Pastor Ben, and I have a job today to walk you guys through something incredibly sad, something incredibly emotional for me. It's letting go of Christmas. I love Christmas, and it always makes me sad to take down the trees and the lights, put the nativity sets away, right, to sing the last Christmas songs that we're going to sing today, and to not watch any more Christmas movies. I mean, I don't look forward to this day at all. It makes me very, very sad because Christmas is my absolute favorite holiday. And you probably knew that already because I like to talk about it a lot. However, there is something that you don't probably know about me that my second favorite holiday is actually tucked right into the season. You see, my second favorite holiday is New Year's. And I I love it for a lot of reasons. I I love it because I can spend time with friends and family and watch the ball drop and all that stuff. But my, my reason that I really, really like New Year's The reason I I really think New Year's is valuable is because it gives us a specific time in our lives to look back over the past year, 
right? We stop everything and we take account. We look at the history. We look at our lives. We look at the good and bad, our wins and our losses. And then we take that as an opportunity to recalibrate ourselves for the upcoming year, right? We make resolutions and promises and, and we try to change things so we have a better outcome in the new year, right? A better outcome in 2020. And I think that's just such a, a healthy practice that we, we participate in. But I have a problem. I got to admit, sometimes I take healthy things and I think if I can just double this up or triple this up or just like basically take that healthy thing and put it on steroids, that somehow it'll be better. So sometimes I do something really crazy. I don't just take account of my year. I'll take account of my entire life which is an incredibly daunting proposition if you think about it. But I did this one year when I was 25 and it actually launched me into a quarter-life crisis, which was a great time. At least I'm hoping it was a quarter-life crisis and not my midlife crisis when I was 25. But, but anyways, this is what happened. Right? I took account of my entire life. I looked at, at what I had done and how far I'd come. And I realized that I wasn't where I wanted to be, which means it was time to change some things. Like, for example, I wasn't married yet. I thought I'd be married by 25 I also had a job, but it wasn't quite exactly how I wanted it to be. I wasn't getting paid as much as I would like. And so it was time to do something about it, right? It was time to make some steps to, to get in the area, get to the space, get to the place where I, I wanted to be. And so the first thing that I was going to deal with was my employment. And so I walked into my boss's office and I worked at a church because I had an undergraduate degree in youth ministry at that time. So I, I got a job almost right away at working with, uh, with youth at a church. And so I went into my boss's office and I said to him, look, here's the reality that I'm living in. I, I don't get paid enough to have my own apartment. So right now I'm living in a trailer park in a trailer with three of my friends just because that's the most I can afford. Is there any way that we can do something about that? Is there any way that I could get enough pay raise to get to a space where at least, at the very least, I could afford my own apartment? And he looked at me and said, I think I know what you should do. And I said, okay, what, do you, what, what should I do? And he said, you should pray about it. Now, I have to tell you that this conversation happened before the turn of the year. After the turn of the year, I went back to have another conversation. And I said, look, I've been praying about it. I'm in the exact same situation. I need to get from here to here and I need your help doing it. And he looked at me and he said, I think you should pray about it. Now, Christians, let's just stop for a second. And let's learn a valuable lesson in the moment, this moment, right? When someone comes to you with a real need, please, please, please don't tell them to pray about it. What you need to say is, let me pray about it. And please join me in that prayer. And then if God has given you the resources, time, or talent to somehow fix their problem, fix their problem. You see, this is what happened. Once he told me that, that same advice once again, I walked out of his office, walked to my office, went to my computer, popped it on, filled out my letter of resignation, walked back over, turned it in. A week later, I was gone. You see, what he didn't understand and what he didn't know is that throughout that past year, I was being mentored by a pastor at a very, very large church in Minnesota. And every time we met, he always said, look, you've outgrown your position. It's time to move on. I said, no, no, no. I I really like the church I'm at. I'm really doing good things. I I think this is really where I need to be. And he told me it's time to move on. Well, after this conversation, I went back to him and I said, what do you have in mind? He said, I have the perfect church that would be looking for a person exactly like you. You should apply. And so I did. 
I applied and I went through the interview process and I gotten all the way to the finals. It was down to me and one other individual. And I went in there. I did my interview. I walked out. They pulled me aside and this is what they told me. Hey, we love you. We love your experience. We, we love your personality. We love everything you're bringing to the table. And we are looking forward to bringing you on staff. However, we have to do one more interview. But just so you know, this person doesn't have the experience. This person doesn't have the personality. This person doesn't even have a degree in this field. But there is one little thing we should tell you. That person's parents are on the interview team. Now, see, you guys are much smarter than me. You know where this is going. I didn't. I thought, okay, it's going to be fine. So I went back home, right? Okay, I'm looking forward to this new position. I got a phone call and they said, well, we regret to inform you that we're going to go in the other direction. And I was mad, right? I was upset. I was upset with the call team, the interview team. I was upset with the church and I was even upset with God. And in that moment, I felt worthless and hopeless and aimless And God would take me on about a two-year journey of kind of just wandering until he led me to the point where he was taking me. But as we encounter this very familiar Christmas story, we see something very similar. We see God taking these wise men on about a two-year journey of wandering, probably seamlessly, aimlessly, trying to wait for God to take them to a place. And this is what we read. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So today we bring our Christmas season to a close by completing our nativity set, right? We've talked about the shepherds. We've talked about Mary. We've talked about Joseph. We talked about the baby Jesus. And now we're adding in the wise men. Even though I don't actually prefer to call them wise men, I prefer to use the term magi. And the reason I I prefer that term is I think it's a better descriptor. But also as we read the story, we're going to see that these guys aren't actually that wise. They are learned. Right? They know some things, but they don't always make wise decisions. In fact, take a look at this. See, they went to Herod and they asked, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. So something you need to know about the Magi is they were into analyzing dreams, they were into magic, and they were into astrology. So they spent a lot of time looking at the stars. And so God spoke to them. In their language, right? He spoke to him through something they were interested in, stars. See, they'd spend a lot of time looking at the stars, and all of a sudden they noticed something very bizarre, something supernatural. There was a new star. It caught their attention. And they had this conversation, what could this mean? Well, they came to the conclusion that it must be signifying someone very special was coming into the world. Now, in that day, who was the most powerful, most significant person that could come into a world? It was a king, right? And so they have this conversation. They say, let's follow the star. Let's see where this leads. And they start wandering and they make it all the way to Jerusalem. So when they show up to Jerusalem, where would they go? Right? If you're looking for a king, you show up to the palace, right? And say, they go to the palace, but here's the problem. Remember, the Jewish people are under Roman rule at this point in time, which means there is somebody appointed by the Roman empire who is king. And they go into the palace And they interact with Herod. And this is where they do something that's either incredibly unwise, maybe even stupid, or incredibly naive. 
You see, if they actually thought there was a Jewish king out there, some sort of rival king, and they told King Herod, this would not be a good idea, right? They would start a conflict. They would start a war. So either they're incredibly unwise, right? Or I think maybe they're just naive. They didn't know the whole story. You see, I think when they walked into the palace and they saw King Herod, they probably thought, oh, maybe he's just had a child, right? There's an heir apparent. There's a future king. And so they come in and they ask him, where's this king that's been born, right? Where's your child? We want to we celebrate with you. But Herod knew the story, right? Herod knew there was no child, which means he was going to get pretty worked up. So this is what happens. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. You see, King Herod was notorious, notorious for being paranoid and being cruel. And anytime his throne was threatened, he would lash out. He would take you out. If you were to threaten Herod's throne, he would kill you and everyone in your vicinity. And this was normal practice for Herod, which means when he was frightened, everyone was frightened because they had no idea what was about to happen. They just knew it was going to be very, very, very bad. Well, this is what he does. In calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. You see, Herod was the king over the Jewish people. And if you live in a culture long enough, you learn about their folklore, right? You learn about their stories and what they talk about. Well, there was a lot of rumors. There was a lot of stories about this person called the Messiah who was going to come into the world. And there were all these predictions, hundreds and thousands of years old, that he had probably heard. But to him, they were just fanciful, right? They were just stories. They, they were just nothing. But when these stories show up at your front door, you begin to take them a little bit more seriously. And so he calls these scribes and says, hey, tell me about these stories. Specifically, tell me, in these stories, in these predictions, in these prophecies, does it say anything about where this king might be born? Well, they give him a response. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, far you, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. And they tell him. The prophecies, these predictions, these stories are very, very, very specific. The king will be born in Bethlehem. Amazing. Amazing. It's such a precise, specific prophecy. But what's so amazing about this prophecy is not just the, the specific nature of it. It's the length of time that happened between the prediction and the fulfillment. You see, this prediction was made by Micah 700 years before it was fulfilled. Just think about that. 700 years is an unbelievable amount of time. Right now it's 2020, right? Just turned 2020. If we back up 700 years, that's 1320. That would be like somebody in 1320 predicting where the future president of the United States would be born. Unbelievable. 700 years. That's before the founding of America. That would be before Christopher Columbus was even born, before he could sail the ocean blue, right? 700 years. Micah makes this prediction that the king, that the Messiah would be born specifically in Bethlehem. Unbelievable. Well, the story continues. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. 
So Herod begins to formulate a plan, right? He's got to protect his throne. So he calls in these magi, calls in the wise men and says, how long have you been following the star? When did the star appear? So what's he doing? He's creating a profile for this child, right? He's going to figure out who this kid is because he's got to take him out to protect his throne. So how old is this kid? Well, Herod's plan continues. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. Now, we all know this. They should have known this, right? The wise men, if they were actually wise, should have picked up on this. He didn't want to actually go kneel down before a future king, right? He had ill intent. So he sends these guys to the child. Because if he can figure out exactly where the child is without having to send a bunch of soldiers, that would keep the child there. They let him pinpoint the exact space where this child was so he could send his soldiers and take him out. Well, the story moves on. When they had heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. So they go. They listen to the king. They go into Bethlehem. And as they're traveling, God puts the star back in front of them. And then it stops, which shows us very clearly that this is something supernatural, something only of God. And they go into the house and they're filled with joy because they have been wandering aimlessly for a long time, hoping beyond hope that there was actually something at the end of their story. Well, they go inside. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They go in and they see something unexpected. A poor family with a child. But they kneel before this king because that's where the star has taken them. And they give this baby gifts fit for a king. Incredibly expensive gifts that would have wowed a family of Mary and Joseph's stature. What a wowed a family who couldn't even afford the lamb to pay for their burnt offering, to pay for their sin offering. A perfect gift that could be utilized to resource a family if they had to run from somebody like King Herod. Well, the story moves on. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So God once again speaks to the Magi and says, look, you need to get out of here. Don't listen to Herod. He's got bad intentions. Move on. And he speaks to Joseph as well. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So God tells Joseph, look, Herod has a plan to destroy the child. And if we fast forward through the story, we see that that's exactly what Herod does. Herod, based on the profile that he'd been created through the Magi's information, kills every male baby boy in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Every one of them. Two years and younger. Just a horrific, horrific, horrific act. But Jesus is saved because of Joseph's obedience. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt... I've called my son. So once again, Joseph listens. They get out of there and they're saved. This actually triggers the fulfillment of another prophecy, another prediction hundreds of years before this event that Jesus, the Messiah, would go to Egypt 
and wait patiently for God to call him out when it was safe. You see, this story is absolutely amazing. It's amazing because as we look at the encompassing elements of the story, we can see the whole story, that we can see God's fingerprints and God's working through the whole thing. I mean, think about it. It starts with the Magi, right? These people who live far, far away. They're foreigners. They have nothing to do with the Jewish faith. And God communicates to them in a way that only would work for them, right? A star in the sky, they would take notice of it. And they begin to follow it and travel all the way to Jesus. God even presents an opportunity for Herod, right? He puts the predictions, he puts the prophecies right in front of his face. They're undeniable, but Herod obviously turns that down. The Magi bring their gifts to Mary and Joseph, which perfectly supplies for this family to run, to have the resources to run. God talks to Joseph and tells him, you need to run right through a dream. Unbelievable how God worked through every element of the story. But here's the thing. Sometimes when we encounter stories like this, and and we are very familiar with it, like the Christmas story, we already know where this is going. Sometimes our knowledge that we have we, we force into these people's story, right? We force into this piece of history as if Mary knew the whole story, as if Joseph knew the whole story, as if the Magi knew the whole story. So I'm going to answer that question right now. Mary, did you know? No, she did not know. She didn't know. She was just like us. You see, every day of her life, she turned the page just like we do. Right, Every day of her life, she didn't know what was coming. All she knew was to listen to God and follow him. She turned the page. Listen to God and follow him and turn the page. She was exactly like us. All we know that we can do, we can't see the future. All we're called to do is listen to God, follow him, and turn the page. And this is why I love New Year's so much. You see, on on New Year's, we do something different. We don't look at the page. We actually look at the previous chapter. We look back over our past year. And when we look over a large quantity of our life, we actually can see God's fingerprints and God's working through our life. In fact, if we look back at all the chapters that God has brought us through, we can see how he's been there with us the entire time. You see, when I was 25 and I'd just gotten turned down on that job opportunity, I took the first job that was available, which is working at the local cable company. And so I was driving around in my cable truck one day and I had this friend that I'd met in college through playing college baseball together. And he gave me a phone call and said, look, I'm working at this university down in Nebraska and they're looking to add a coach to the baseball team. Would you be interested? I said, yeah, I'd be interested if they're interested. He said, they are interested. I've talked to them already. Would you mind if they give you a call? And I said, that'd be great. So they gave me a call and they talked to me about what it all entails. I thought it was a good fit. As a nice little perk on the side, they were going to give me a master's degree. Obviously, I had to work for it. But they were going to give it to me for free. And so I chose ministry. And and as I was traveling down there, I got another call from the school. And they said, look, you're a young guy. We have a lot of new students and we need some more resident assistance. Would you be willing to live on campus? We'll pay you a little bit more and you'll have free housing. I said, yeah, I'm willing to do that. When I got down there, they told me about what my job entailed. And part of my job was that I had to create social activities for the kids, right? I had to get my guys involved and meeting people and all that type of stuff. So they have a good college experience. And part of that was that I got assigned a sister floor with some girls. So these people could interact and mingle. So that's part of my job to get these two groups together. 
Well, the first time that we had one of those minglings, this is the first time that I got to meet uh, one of my future friends, which was a, a brunette tall volleyball player that went to the school. I saw her from a distance. We quickly became friends. And over time, she actually invited me one summer to come out and serve at a Lutheran Bible camp that she was working at. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll go with you. And so I applied, I got the position and I went out to Montana to serve. And my job was to be a counselor, right? To watch over the kids and do things like that. Well, after the first week, uh, something strange happened. The pastor who was supposed to come in and do all the teaching got sick and couldn't make it. You see that, that camp assigned a pastor each week from the area to come in and do the teaching. So they said, who wants to do this, right? We're desperate. Who wants to do it? And I said, I'll, I'll take care of it, right? I'll do the teaching for a week. What's the worst that can happen? Well, after that week, they came back to me to tell me how I did and said, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to cancel all the pastors for the rest of the summer. And we're just going to have you do all the teaching. And I said, that'd be great. Obviously, I saw that God was doing something here. And it was in a moment in my life where I felt God was calling me back into full-time ministry. I was, I was ready for full-time, full-time ministry again. And so I actually started applying at positions throughout the summer too, but nothing was really working. And so when the summer came to a close, I took a, a quick little job up in Minnesota, a contract call to do some, some landscaping stuff up there. My friend, the volleyball player, and I were now dating. She went back to school in Nebraska. I was up in Minnesota. And it was getting to the point where we were missing each other uh, quite a bit, right? So it's time to go on a date, but we were far away. And I said, let's meet halfway. So we met halfway in a town called Sioux City, Iowa. Now, it was a Sunday because that was my day off. And I said, let's go to church. And so I pulled up my phone. I Googled churches in Sioux City, Iowa. And the number one uh, church on on the docket for me was a church called Morningside Lutheran, which is an LCMC big church in Sioux City. So we went there. We went on a tour of the city, had a great day. I went back to work. She went back to school and uh, didn't think much of it. Well, the next day after work, I did what I did every night, which is look on the ministry job boards. And you wouldn't believe it, but the number one job posting, the latest job posting was Morningside Lutheran in Sioux City, Iowa. So I applied Two months later, I found myself in my office in Sioux City, Iowa at Morningside Lutheran. Not long after, I'd find myself back at that Bible camp with that volleyball player next to me uh, saying our I do's because that volleyball player is my wife. Next to me was my good friend, Wade, who gave me a phone call when I was driving around a cable truck, inviting me to come to his school to coach baseball. You see, it's amazing when we take account of our lives. It's amazing when we look back on the previous chapters, how we can clearly see that God has been working through the whole thing, that God's fingerprints are everywhere. You see, as we close out the sermon series, there's one last thing that I want you to know about God. There's one last unexpected thing that our God does for us, and it's this, that we can expect God to work in our lives. You see, oftentimes we're too close to see it, But God is always working. God's fingerprints are always there. And all we have to do is listen to God, be faithful, follow him, and turn the page. To listen to God, be faithful, follow him, and turn the page.